Welcome to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, brought to you by Dermalogica. I've had quite a journey with my skin over the decades. I battled terrible acne in my teens and early 20s that left scarring. Then I enjoyed a little too much sun on vacation and during summers in my 20s and 30s. And now getting older and perimenopause, they're changing the texture, the smoothness, and brightness of my skin. That's why I have relied on Dermalogica to help me get through all of those phases with their products for all skin concerns like acne, hyperpigmentation, and aging. It's professional results at home. Now, just for listeners of this podcast, use the code AGINGPOWERFLY to receive an exclusive gift with a purchase of $50 or more at dermalogica.ca. Also, tag me with your products. You can also shop at Sephora and professional skin centers across Canada. Now, let's begin the show. All right, so here's a question for you. How did you sleep last night? Right, like I know that's a loaded question. And if you didn't sleep well, then when was the last time that you did have a restful full night's sleep that left you feeling rejuvenated and rested and energized for the next day? Well, one of my New Year's resolutions from last year that I have rolled over to this year is prioritizing sleep and getting at least seven hours of sleep a night. I know, seven hours. It sounds like I'm saying 17 hours for some of you, I'm sure. It is definitely easier said than done. But listen, it is in the rearview mirror now for me that I would go out with my friends and we're partying until four or five in the morning and then you get home and you can get away with maybe a few hours of sleep and then you get up and off you go to your university class or maybe you go off to work in that state. Like that's a long, long time ago. And I know a lot of you might even be listening thinking, okay, whoever is able to get a full night's sleep consistently night after night? And that's a great question. You're not alone if you are one of those people who are saying sleep is elusive. A third of Canadians are only getting three or fewer nights of restful sleep a week. Just 16% of Canadians reported getting a restful sleep every night of the week. And three in 10 feel their ability to sleep is worse today than it was three years ago. So that is why I am dedicating this episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello to, you got it, sleep, elusive, beautiful, necessary sleep. And in the context of this podcast, which focuses so much on women's health, it won't be a surprise to many of you listening that women, we are less likely than men to report getting four or more restful nights of sleep a week. And we all know the stats out there. I mean, listen, good sleep, it improves brain performance, it improves our mood, it improves our health. And conversely, not getting enough quality sleep regularly, it raises the risk of a lot of diseases and disorders out there. And they range from heart disease and stroke to obesity and dementia. And there is a lot more to good sleep than just the hours that you spend in bed And we are going to get to the bottom of the science of good sleep with today's guest. Please welcome to Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello, respirologist and sleep medicine physician, Dr. Wagani Falate. 
It is wonderful to have you here and welcome to the show. Thanks, Melissa. I'm so excited to be here. And I have to just say this. I mean, for people who are not watching this and just listening, you look so rested. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I practice what I preach. (laughs) I mean, listen, I believe it because I'm just looking at you and you're flawless and rested. And and I think this is why you're the perfect person to talk to about (laughs) this. So, you know, I first want to I want to know about your work. Um, as a sleep medicine physician, and what does your typical day entail? Thank you for that question. You know, like anyone in medicine, no two days are alike, but most of the patients that come to see me are coming to see me because they're not sleeping well. It's either they're not able to fall asleep or they fall asleep, but they can't stay asleep. They may have lots of wake-ups at night. They wake up tired. So those are the patients that I see. And in a typical office visit, we may go through, you know, your sleeping schedule. Like, what does it look like when you go to sleep? What are you doing before you go to sleep? Um, What do you do at night when you wake up and you can't go back to sleep? So all of these things we talk about in real detail. And some patients will even have had one step further and gone for a sleep test, which we can talk about what that involves. And that gives us a really good understanding of what's happening with their architecture of their sleep, with their physiology, and if there's actually a sleep disorder. Okay. I love that. That is fascinating. And so like, you know, you've just laid out who are the people who are seeking your care. And I'm always so curious, how did you find your way into that arm of medicine? Yeah, it was a little bit by accident. I initially did my uh, training program in respirology, which is the science and medicine of breathing and disorders related to breathing. And as part of our residency program, we spent some time in sleep medicine because there's a lot of respiratory disorders that happen when you sleep. And what struck me was seeing how happy patients were once they got their sleep problems treated. It was such a gratifying and satisfying experience that I I thought to myself, well, I want to be in this kind of work every day where I can make a difference. And there is honestly not a day that doesn't go by in my work when someone says to me, you know, ever since you treated my sleep disorder, I'm a better person. I'm a better wife or spouse, coworker, friend, because they're sleeping well. And gosh, that's like a great way to to spend your day. I agree. That is so, so great. Well, listen, most people listening know the benefits. I listed some of them earlier. The benefits of a good night's sleep and regular good sleep, regular being perhaps the operative word here. People get sick less often. Uh, we stay at a healthier weight. It lowers our risk for serious health problems. Some of them I already listed, but I'll list them again, diabetes and heart disease. We're going to get to all of this today, by the way. It reduces your stress. It improves your mood. You can think more clearly. You do better in school. You do better in work. You get along with other people. You're a nicer person when you're not raging and tired. So I want to know the basic question. What is the science behind sleep? Like, What is actually happening to our bodies when we sleep and specifically when we sleep well? Yeah. So when we're sleeping well, we are undergoing a lot of tissue and cellular repair at a really microscopic microscopic level. That's important for our brain health. That's important for our cardiovascular health. And, you know, when you don't sleep well, all of that just kind of frays and goes away. And it's not just one night of bad sleep, but it, you know, it's like a building block. So you have one night of bad sleep, but then that leads to another bad night of sleep and years go by and you are not sleeping well. And then you, you know, come to realize that a lot of health issues have come up as a result. Okay. So 
most uh, guidelines I read about say, okay, an adult should get about seven to nine hours of sleep. So I want to know why that number? Like, why isn't it five or why isn't it 12? Right. So this number, seven to nine hours for adults, has come through a lot of research and really expert consensus decision-making among the sleep experts in the world. And that number is important because it allows us to cycle through all the different sleep stages that we have as adults, and there are a number of them, and each single sleep stage is so important. And we need to cycle through at least two or three rotations of each of these different sleep cycles a night, and it comes out to being seven to nine hours. And also, working backwards, studies have shown that when you're on the the fringes, right, when you're sleeping less than seven or even more than nine, it's not healthy. Okay, so what are some of those stages and and like what is that cycle then of a good yeah, night's so sleep? So there are four different stages of sleep and this is really getting into the nitty-gritty of what sleep is. So you have your lighter stages of sleep which we call stage 1 sleep. Uh, stage 2 sleep is also on the lighter end and then one of the deepest stages of sleep is called Uh, stage three sleep or slow wave sleep. And then the deepest is REM sleep. So we want to be able to get through each of those cycles several times during the night. And that's how we come to the seven to nine hours of sleep. Okay, so it's natural to be moving. Is it in a sequential? Is that sequential? It, usually it goes, not always one, two, three in REM, but in something similar to that where you go through each of those rotations several times during the night. Okay. And so it's when you're getting too little of sleep, you're not getting through all of those. Yeah, exactly. And then you may get shortened. You may get a lot of light stages of sleep and less of the deep stages. And a lot of the, the power of sleep is in, you know, stage three, deep, slow wave sleep and in REM sleep as well. I didn't think that we would get into this, but, you know, like I'm wearing my fancy dancy Apple watch and, I, you know, there's a lot of wearable tech out there. And one of the jobs that a lot of them do is track sleep. Is there any accuracy to this? <laughs> so don't hate me, but I have a love-hate relationships with all of these um, sleep trackers. I like them because I'm happy that patients are taking interest. You know, they want more data. I want to know, how did I sleep last night? How much was my deep sleep, light sleep, my oxygen, my heart rate? And that's great, like that you're thinking and putting emphasis on it. But sometimes we can put too much emphasis, right? Like those sleep watches are really just a crude measurement of movement. It's kind of like the first, you know, stage one of um, of the type of sleep studies that we did, right, where it was only looking at movement and trying to correlate, well, if you're moving in sleep, you're probably in a lighter stage of sleep. And if you're not moving, you're likely in REM sleep. So it's not a perfect measurement. So patients will say to me, oh, you know, I've been feeling good, but my sleep watch is saying I'm getting no REM sleep. I'm like, well, if you're feeling rested and you have energy to get through your day, well, maybe it's not as accurate. So Again, it's like a love-hate relationship. Don't spend too much time on it. Focus more on how you feel. Okay. So why is it um, that so few of us or a good chunk of us, or even from time to time, you know, we're in and out of better sleep or worse sleep? Like what is contributing maybe more generally to poor sleep? I think, you know, Melissa, it's our modern life. I hate to say it. You know, we have so much attention grabbing things that are happening. We have our phones, we have our computers, we have our television, you know, we are constantly accessible 24 seven and there's light everywhere, right? Mm. So you have light from your computer, from your phone, which is literally inches, 
I don't know about you, but even mine is like inches from where I sleep and, you know, it dings or this and that. So all of these are attention grabbers that take us out of deep sleep. And unfortunately, unless we really, I don't want to say break up with it, but have a real separation between your, you know, technologies, then you're likely to focus more on the sleep. So when it comes to poor sleep, and we'll get to, to more of, of uh, you know, the ways to get around this and to create uh, better sleep, but are there gender differences uh, as it seems that some, I don't know if it's just studies, but certainly surveys where there are women reporting that mm -hmm. compared to men, they're having worse sleep. Is that true? Yeah, it's hundred percent true. So there have been lots of studies that show on average, adult women will actually sleep 11 minutes more than men, which sounds like a small number. But if you're thinking about it at a population level, what it is greater than men. Part of the reason why we think that that's happening is actually the quality of sleep in women is actually less, right? So many reasons for that. We have so many roles in the home, right? We're caregivers, we're caretakers, we have so many things. We're the first to wake up often if a child is sick or needs us. So there are so many different fragments to our sleep. Um, and women, even though they may sleep longer than men, like you were saying, report greater dissatisfaction, right, with their sleep. They don't find that the sleep is as restful. They're more likely to nap during the day. And so all of these factors play a role. And plus, like a woman's life, there's so much hormonal variation and fluctuations from, you know, getting your period to being pregnant, breastfeeding, postpartum, infant care, and then obviously menopause. These are such huge fluctuations in our hormones that in and of itself have their own effect on our sleep. Okay, let's get into that a little bit because... There is so much that you just alluded to uh, when it comes specifically to women or people who have ovaries, which is hormones. What is the biological impact of our just our physiology, our difference in our bodies and the presence of hormones and those changes in hormones, be it through perimenopause or menopause? How do those changes or do they mm -hmm. impact quality of sleep? Yeah, so for sure, especially for women in the menopause transition, studies have shown that 40 to 60% of women will say they're not sleeping well. And it's almost like a hard stop where they were sleeping well, 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 all of a sudden they're in perimenopause and they're can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep, waking up tired. And it is like a shock. And I see this almost every day at work too. Women are like, well, a couple of years ago, I was sleeping like a baby and now I'm not sleeping. So there's definitely a hormonal, you know, um, mechanism at play. Part of the transition too, as you know, there's lots of symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats that affect our sleep um, and also mood changes, right? So during that perimenopause transition, a lot of women will start to report symptoms of feeling down, feeling irritable, anxious, and that also affects our sleep. Okay, that uh, we can totally understand that. I mean, anybody who's in the perimenopausal shift, one of the big things I think that a lot of us commiserate about is my sleeps have gone out the window. Maybe they weren't great to begin with, but certainly a lot of it, anecdotally it, changed. Yeah, right? it's gotten it, worse. it has changed for sure. So, you know, having regular good quality sleep, it's not just as we're laying out here, it's not just like a, a nice to have. This is really integral to our health mm -hmm. and our well being. And also in preventing bigger issues. So 100%. let's start generally here. What does getting a good night's sleep help prevent? So great question. It is, I always say to patients, it's your, first of all, your emotional armor, right? We all know that when we don't sleep well, we are more irritable. 
We are quick to make rash decisions. So from an emotional well-being point of view, good sleep helps us with that. It also helps us to keep our memory, right? We know that when people don't sleep well, and there's lots of studies that given um, different patients, different memory tasks or recall tasks, when they sleep poorly, they can't perform those tasks. So we know that important sleep is important or sufficient sleep rather is important for our memory. It protects our heart, right? When you sleep less than six hours a night, you're three times more likely to have a cardiac event than someone who sleeps greater than that. And especially in midlife, that's even more important where they've done a study of like 500 healthy adults, this is men and women, and they studied their sleep and their coronary arteries for five years. The group that slept five to six hours was up to 300% more likely to have coronary artery calcification over five years, just from sleep. And these were healthy people to begin with. So again, sleep is important for our cardiac health, for our brain health. There is huge links between poor sleep and Alzheimer's disease, which is a really exciting thing in sleep medicine that we were able to make this link. Not only that, our immune function, especially this time of year, we're more likely to have colds and flus. And if you're not sleeping well, you're more likely to get sick. You also don't respond as well to your vaccines if you're not sleeping well. Yeah, they've done studies where they gave people a flu vaccine and then studied and divided the groups, you know, those that were short sleepers and those that slept well. The group that slept less than five, six hours had less antibodies to that flu vaccine. So again, important for our immune function, brain health, uh, weight gain. So there's also links between sleeping poorly and gaining weight. And the hormones that are responsible for telling you that you're full are low when you don't sleep well. And the hormones that are telling you, oh, eat, 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 you're hungry. Don't you know you're hungry? Are higher when you don't sleep well. Oh my gosh. Okay. I want to dive into this a little bit more because each one of those elements, because there is, uh, as I'm hearing you say, definitely a gender difference, particularly when you do add in the other variable of menopause or the menopause Mm -hmm. transition. So if we can go back one step and, you know, the study that you quoted about the calcification of the coronary arteries, just because of the difference in sleep alone, that's really shocking. Mm -hmm. So now let's add the layer of being a woman who is in the perimenopause or menopause transition plus heart health. Now, anybody who's listened to earlier episodes knows that there is uh, automatically an increased risk of cardiovascular disease simply because of the menopause transition alone and the fluctuation of hormones. Now let's add the layer of poor sleep to that. So you know, what are you seeing, whether it's clinically or in the research, about just how crucial that sleep portion is when you already add it to the increased risk of cardiovascular disease as an older woman? Well, it's it's additive, right? And, you know, like you were saying, when we transition through the menopause transition, we have higher risk of cardiac disease. Our cholesterol profile is not optimal. And you're adding now that you're not sleeping well. And a lot of them can co- like can you know you're not sleeping well because maybe you're having symptoms of cardiac disease and then you have cardiac disease and then you're also not sleeping well. So it is so much more like again building up on the layers for women, unfortunately. 
Yeah. And, and the same thing with brain health. I mean, just to hear that difference in dementia or Alzheimer's and, and women, again, is there a clear gender difference there when you add that variable? Yeah. Sleep? So that's a great, I don't know if we know that. And, you know, maybe that's, I haven't seen that, that study, but what we do know is that overall Alzheimer's disease is more prevalent in women. We know that right. In older women. So you know, if we went back 20 or 30 years when the actual changes in your brain are happening, I'm sure we'll be able to say that, yeah, menopause, or the transition to menopause was playing a big role. Yeah. Okay. So women in sleep is, is the focus of this episode because so many women do report having a reduced quality and quantity of sleep compared to men. You know, again, I'm always interested to hear where the research meets you as a clinician and your clients and your patients. And maybe there's a bias here because you are a sleep doctor. So people are coming <laughs> to you only when they have their problems. But what are you hearing in your office specifically from women? Yeah, I'm hearing exactly like we were saying, you know, it is such an abrupt change and they were not prepared. Like that's the big one. They were blindsided. No one had told them that, you know, hey, in your mid 40s, it's when things start to change for your sleep. You could think of so many women who tell me, I thought it was just, you know, my stress of my my teenage kids or my work or my marriage or my aging parents. And so, you know, as women, we can you know, attribute so many of our issues to other things, what's happening in our life. And when in fact, it's actually, you know, physiologically changes in their sleep. It's fascinating to me. It ha It's just fascinating to me. So let's now talk about sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I want to bring this up is because, you know, I, I am here doing this podcast representing the average person out there. And my knowledge of sleep apnea is a CPAP machine because you stop breathing and then you have to wear this thing that makes you look like Bane and <laughs> and and you have this like you know a machine you're attached to machine like it's you have really to carry sexy it around right? everywhere you go <laughs> oh yeah it's the sexiest thing we've ever seen and heard of right like this is my concept of what is sleep apnea so the reason why i bring it up is because it seems as though there is perhaps something that we're missing in women's care and sleep and sleep apnea, rather than just thinking like that is an older person's problem, or maybe it's just a man's problem. So can we start with what is sleep apnea? And um, how are we seeing it in women? And is there a difference in how we're seeing it? Yeah, great question. So sleep apnea is probably one of the most common sleep disorders that we see as sleep physicians. What is happening is your muscles in your throat are relaxing at night, which is what they're doing normally, but they are relaxing and collapsing your airway. So for a few seconds during the night, you're not breathing. Your brain picks up on that and says, Melissa, you got to breathe, you breathe, and then you breathe again. And so sleep apnea is that repetitive pattern of stopping breathing and breathing more than is considered normal, meaning that we can all do this a little bit at night, but when it starts to become too frequent is when you have sleep apnea. And like you were saying, we think of it as an older person's disease or as a man's disease. And that's because the classic symptoms of sleep apnea are snoring. So your partner or spouse is telling you you're snoring. I actually see you stop breathing at night or you yourself wake up with a gasping sensation out of breath like you were just coming you know, underwater. Um, and so those are the most common symptoms. And what's interesting is that women, so two things. One, women are not as likely as men to have sleep apnea before menopause. So men, by far, what before a woman hits menopause, men are two, three to four times more likely to have sleep apnea. 
when a woman transitions into menopause, she is as likely as a man to be diagnosed with sleep apnea. Hmm. So lots of reasons for that. During this transition, our weight tends to go up, right? So that's a risk factor for sleep apnea. And even the drop in our estrogen levels play a role in our muscle tone. So our airway, for lack of a better word, is more floppy when we're transitioning in menopause. And so we're more likely to have sleep apnea in women. Another important thing that I want your listeners to know is that for women, we present differently. Mm. We don't have the classic, not always, but majority of women don't have the snoring, the gasping, the stopping breathing. They'll have sort of more subtle signs, headaches in the morning, difficulty concentrating, just generalized fatigue, or you're waking up at night and you can't go back to sleep. And then the family doctors, no fault of their own, will say, oh, maybe you're depressed or stressed, like what's going on? When in fact, they actually have sleep apnea. So we really want to educate all healthcare providers and women to say, you know what, I'm in the menopause transition, I'm not sleeping well, could this be sleep apnea? Because there are great treatments. And yes, CPAP is one of them. They're not as bad as the Bane uh, image. The masks <laughs> have come a long way. So there's some really cute ones. But it makes such a difference when you are treated. Night and okay. day difference. So let's get into, you know, you're having bad sleep and I come to you, you're a sleep physician. So what is the testing or what's the protocol of what happens in the doctor's office and afterwards to help diagnose, you know, and identify what is going on with my sleep? Excellent question. So first and foremost, we take a history. So we simply ask, like, what's happening with your sleep? For me, I like to physically map out what's happening during the night. When do you go to bed? What do you do before bed? How long does it take you to fall asleep? And then we work our way through the night, some other behaviors, and we kind of create like a picture or a story. And then if my probability, you know, thinking that a patient has a sleep disorder, I will often recommend a sleep test. And that no one likes when I, when I ask them to do this test because it does involve you sleeping over in our lab overnight, with cameras watching you, you have all kinds of wires and things on you. And I get it, it's horrible. A lot of people don't like it, but we get so much information. Do people actually sleep? Can they actually sleep? They do, they do. (laughs) And I always tell patients, listen, I'm not looking for a textbook seven, nine hours of sleep. If you can give me, you know, chunks of sleep or, you know, four to five hours, I'm happy. Because sleep apnea is usually present or absent, right? So if you've slept four or five hours and we get a nice glimpse of all the different sleep stages and you're really not stopping breathing, the probability is less. But oftentimes, even if I see four or five hours of sleep and someone has sleep apnea, it will come out. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, we will get to treatments in just a second and also things that we can do to just create a better sleep routine so that we can all get a better sleep. I I do want to talk about the role, though, of of other things that people are utilizing to try to get or or hack their way to a better (laughs) sleep. And And one that comes to mind are just substances like alcohol or even cannabis or gummies. I can't tell you how many of my girlfriends are like, oh, you can't sleep. Just pop a gummy, you know, and I'm like, what? Shouldn't you try to fix what's causing the bad sleep? I mean, I don't. So I I mean, I'm curious to hear from your perspective as the doctor here. Where is your stance on does uh, a substance like cannabis, a gummy, alcohol, where does that fit into helping create a better sleep? 
Great question. Let's start with alcohol because that's the most studied that we know. And I'm going to make a lot of enemies here when I say <laughs> that if you are not sleeping well, there is no safe amount of alcohol. It is a known sleep disruptor. It reduces the amount of REM sleep that we get. It also leads to frequent awakenings at night. And the awakenings are so short that you're not even often aware of it. Mm. So you just wake up and like, oh, you know, I, I don't feel so rested. Or, you know, what was that all about? And you won't often put two and two together that the alcohol was, was a, a culprit. I'm not saying you should never drink, but just be mindful that even a single serving of alcohol will interfere with your sleep. And patients will often say to me, oh, but Dr. Filate, it helps me fall asleep, right? It relaxes me and I fall asleep. And yeah, you're sedated, right? So you'll fall asleep. But then once you go into sleep, that sleep is light sleep. It's interrupted sleep and you don't get deep REM sleep. So there's that about alcohol. Cannabis, we don't, you know, the jury's still out. It's such a new area in medicine and and especially in sleep medicine and the role of cannabis. I think it's in the years to come, we'll get more data. I have a lot of, like you, anecdotal evidence from patients who say, especially patients who have really bad insomnia and they've tried sleeping pills and they've tried everything and they're just not able to sleep. They have found that they've gotten relief from cannabis. So again, it's, it's not something I recommend, but if a patient finds that it's helping them, they use it. But again, I have to preface it by saying we don't know the long-term effects. We don't know how this is going to affect your memory as you get older. We're not going to know if over time you're going to need stronger and stronger doses to get the same effects. So again, we don't know. And so I just leave it with the patient to make the decision. Okay. You brought up the word insomnia, which I actually haven't even used yet. Is that a clinical diagnosis? Yes. So insomnia is. So it can be anywhere from not being able to fall asleep not being able to stay asleep or not feeling rested. You need to have it for at least three to four nights per week for a period of three months. And the reason why we want it to be that long is we all are gonna have nights where we don't sleep well, right? We have big presentations, you got a stressful thing going on and we're all gonna have nights like that, it's normal. But insomnia is something that is happening for a prolonged period of time. And there are different causes of insomnia. For example, you can have insomnia from another sleep disorder, right? From sleep apnea, from restless leg syndrome. You may have insomnia from another medical condition. You might have diabetes or kidney disease and you're getting up a lot at night. That can cause insomnia. Some, uh, you know, lifestyle choices. So if you are up all night gaming or on the phone and, you know, you don't give yourself enough time to sleep, then it's hard to fall asleep or, um, you know, so lots of lifestyle factors. And then there's what we call primary insomnia, meaning we've looked at all of these options. Is it a medical disorder? Is there a sleep disorder going on? And if the answer is no, then they just have what's called primary insomnia. Okay. All right. This is where I want to transition to the news that you can use today in your life. And that is all the things that we can learn to do better to ensure better quantity and quality of sleep. So I want to start with first some lifestyle changes that you would recommend and you recommend to your patients that we can all do right now, even tonight, to have a better night's sleep. So what are those lifestyle changes or choices that we can make? Excellent question. So first and foremost, you want to keep a regular routine with your bedtime, just like we do with our kids. When they were babies, you put them to bed at the same time, they get up at the same time, and that doesn't change for us as adults. So you want to stick to the same routine where you can get your seven to nine hours and even on the weekends. You want to cut out all electronics 
at least one hour before bed. It's easier said than done. I'm not perfect. Uh, you know, it, it's something I work on every day. But when you don't have your screens before bed, you'll have deeper sleep. And studies have shown that when you are on your phone or computer, your brain is two to three hours behind where your body is. So you may fall asleep, but your 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 melatonin levels are not quite where you need them to be for your deep sleep. So when you wake up, your body is still in a sleep debt. So we really want to try to get rid of the electronics before bed. You want to make your bedroom cool. We sleep better and deeper when we're in a cooler environment. You want to have a dark room. So put away all your clocks, your, you know, things that glow in the dark and keep a dark and cool bedroom. And another thing we didn't talk about was caffeine. So mm. caffeine, you don't want to have caffeine late um, and you don't want to have alcohol right before bed either. So you said, you know, even on the weekends, sleep the same amount of time and wake up at the same amount of time. So mm -hmm. like our sleep-ins, you know, you've had a long, hard week and you're like, yes, I get to sleep in on Saturday and Sunday. Is that not actually helping you? I mean, you? if you're adding an hour or two, I don't think it's a huge, it's a huge issue. But, you know, gone are the days that we would want you waking up at noon, right? I mean, I don't know how many of us sleep that late, but you know, we don't want you to overcompensate and then you're not tired that night at your regular routine and then you're going to bed later and then you're waking up later and then oh, all of a sudden it's Sunday night and you have to go to work on Monday. And so you're, you want as much as you can try to keep it within a normal or regular routine. I read something recently and I'd love to know, know your take on it that somebody had said, you know, you should treat bedtime not as the end of, the, of your day, but as the beginning of your next day. Hmm. That's a, I'd never heard of that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Right. That way, because yeah. we're always like, oh, it's a busy day. It's okay. I'll just sleep less because I have to finish A, B, C, D, yep. you know? And, and so then it's like, then you think, well, I'll just chop my couple hours sleep off shorter. my sleep yeah. rather than saying, okay, well, that's actually the start of my next day. So you yeah. preserve that time as sacred, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's now talk about pharmacological or um, pharmaceutical medical interventions here. And, you know, we talked about substances. Um, you talked about caffeine. We were talking about alcohol, cannabis. Now let's go on the other side because there is a plethora of things that either A, promise they're going to put you to sleep, keep you asleep, just take this pill. And so, you know, I am not certainly somebody who says, oh, it's natural and therefore no sleep aids. So, where do you stand on this as a physician in terms of what works, what doesn't work, and what are options that you do look at for your, your patients if they do need extra assistance to get and yeah. fall asleep? So, you know, contrary to me being a doctor, I'm actually not a fan of sleeping pills. I don't recommend them as first line, especially for someone who has primary insomnia. And there are lots of reasons. Number one, they only work for when you're taking them, right? So if you want to try to come off the sleeping pills, oftentimes your insomnia gets worse. And, it, you know, it, there's no lingering benefit over time. Also, you develop a tolerance to these medications where over time you're going to need higher and higher doses. And more frighteningly, it affects your memory. So there's lots of data that shows long-term use of these sedative sleeping pills will impair your memory as you get older. So it's not something, I'm not saying I never prescribe them because that would be false, but I don't start with that. So what I would do is, again, we look at the lifestyle. Are you having excess alcohol, excess caffeine before bed? Are there stressors that you're doing at night that are interfering with your ability to sleep? Then we think about what can you do to encourage good sleep, whether that be 
you know, reading a book, meditation, listening to music. You can try some natural supplements, so melatonin. A lot of patients will will reach for that. And it's hit or miss whether it's effective for you, but I don't have a concern about it because it is a natural health product. Some patients will report some benefits with magnesium. Again, not everyone will benefit from it. But what has shown to be the most and our number one treatment for insomnia is what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep, so CBT. And it's, I always tell patients, like a cross between sleep counseling, sleep coaching, sleep education program that's done with you to help break bad habits of your sleep and to give you tips and tricks to help you get to sleep well and stay asleep. And where do you stand on napping? So I I say this because I used to host a morning show for many, many years. And so my sleep cycle was really messed up because I was up at 3 a.m., which is not morning to me. That's the middle of the night. But I was up for years straight of up at 3 a.m., do the show. I try to get back home by 11 a.m., but then I could sleep and nap you know, for two or three or four hours in the afternoon because I was a night owl. I was still out very active social life. And then I'd be out from seven until 10, back to bed up at three. I mean, listen, I know you're looking at me going, boy, (laughs) how did you even survive? I barely survived. Um, And so napping is what I really relied on. And not everybody can nap. Maybe it's, it's something that's lost, but I look at my parents who are in their 80s and they nap every single day. So are you a fan of the nap or not a fan of the nap yeah, or where does that it's sit great, I, I, It's kind of individual with each patient. I think overall, I would say we should try to avoid napping for a couple of reasons. Oftentimes when patients nap, they really get into it, right? They, they will sleep for like two hours and then they say to me, well, then I'm, I'm, you know, I couldn't go to bed at my regular 10 or 11 o'clock. I'm going to bed at one. And then the vicious cycle starts. Where I think napping has a role are, for example, like what you, with you, like a, like almost like a shift worker, right? If you have to go into work at 11 p.m., and I always say to them, take a nap right before your shift, right? Maybe between 6 to 8 p.m., you get try to sleep, have dinner, and then go to work. In that case, that's, that's a, an acceptable way of napping because you're working against your own biological rhythm with your, with your sleep, similar to when you had to wake up at 3 a.m. Again, that your body is in deep REM sleep and now you're telling it, okay, we got to go and be on TV. So again, napping is okay. And I find also for elderly patients, many reasons why they nap. One, they have the time right? They don't, <laughs> there's, I don't want to say that they don't do anything, but you have the luxury of time and it's, it's a luxury in those cases. And then also for older patients, a lot of the time there are medical conditions that lead to poor sleep at nighttime. Maybe they have to frequent urination or they have to take medications or what have you. And so the sleep itself isn't restorative and they compensate by the naps. Okay. So I want you to speak right now to that high functioning busy, ambitious woman who's listening. She puts her kids down, says goodnight to her partner. You know, maybe it's eight or nine o'clock at night. Uh, Now she starts work up again. She couldn't finish throughout the day. Maybe she's an entrepreneur. Maybe she just has a really heavy workload at work. And now she's going to continue working until one or maybe two in the morning. God forbid she's still doing that at three in the morning. But then her alarm is set for five or six a.m., And that's the only way she feels like she can get her work done and still be a mother or be a wife. What can she do to change that habit so that she can create and preserve more quality sleep time? 
I think it's through education, right? By letting someone like that know that you're actually doing yourself a disservice by staying up and trying to get work done, you know, past your bedtime. I would ask her, well, how effective is your work? How well are you processing information? How well are you concentrating and focusing? And most of the times she needs those three hours after everyone goes to bed because everything's just taking longer for her, right? Because her brain and her, it is tired. So I would say, no, you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Go to bed at a regular time, get your eight hours of sleep. If you then have to get up at 6 a.m. and work for an hour before everyone wakes up, you'll be more productive. And then I would argue that by sleeping consistently eight hours a night, that your daytime productivity is better. So maybe you're able to accomplish more because you're sharper, you can focus, your attention is on point. And then those working hours are just more productive. I always say there's a cost to every choice that we make. You know, there, there may be a benefit, but I think in these cases, I always just think of the cost. And you already laid out earlier the health risks of not sleeping well, whether it's heart issues or brain issues. Um, so, uh, you know, I say this because I have many women in my head and this is them. This is them right now. These are family members. They're very good friends. And there's nothing that I can say where I say to them, you cannot survive on four hours no, of sleep. Can't. So now I can say a sleep physician said so. <laughs> <laughs> so listen to this episode and hopefully it will motivate you because, uh, you know, I just, I just know that's not sustainable long-term it's for not, sure. No. Does it matter when those eight, seven to nine hours or seven, eight or nine hours of sleep are happening. In other words, there's so much discussion about circadian rhythm and sort of living your life by daylight. Mm -hmm. Is there science to prove that? Or are people who work night shifts just really out of luck? Unfortunately, the night shift workers are really out of luck. A scary point I want to let people know is that the WHO, the World Health Organization, has actually classed nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen, meaning that people who are sleeping or working night shifts for prolonged time can have increased rates of cancer. So there is a huge, you know, and unfortunately, listen, we've all had to work nights, especially us in the medical community. That was part of how, how we live. And we need people at night, right? Working in the hospitals, emergency rooms, but doing that over a prolonged period of time is not healthy. And in terms of when you get your hours, again, we want for the average person that does not have a circadian rhythm disorder, you want to get target your natural ebbs and flows with your melatonin, which are 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. That's sort of the hallmark of the sleep. You kind of want to get somewhere in between there. And yeah, there are people who say they're night owls and they they cannot fall asleep until one. Well, hopefully they're able to stay asleep until nine. But most of us, you know, have to get up, work, kids, et cetera. But those are, that's what I would recommend. That's the window. It is just fascinating. Um, I mean, we're really just scratching the surface, but you did such a great job of sort of laying out, laying out the importance uh, of good sleep and certainly the risks and the benefits of getting it or not getting it. So I like to end every episode by asking all of my guests the same question, which is, what is your number one piece of advice on how to age powerfully? Oh, I love that question. So obviously I'm biased as a sleep doctor, and I think it's time that we change the narrative of sleep. We need to focus on it just the same way that we focus on our diet, on our exercise, on keeping mentally sharp. It is really the bedrock from which to age well, because no matter how well you're eating, how well you're exercising, if you're not sleeping well, none of that will matter. 
right? And I often have to put it in context for some of my patients, especially for women. Listen, the average Canadian woman, is her life expectancy is 84 years old. And we spend a third of our life sleeping. So that's an equivalent of 28 years of our life we are sleeping and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about how important it is. We don't talk about what's happening in those 28 years of our life that sets up the rest of our life to live and age well. So again, it's changing the narrative of sleep, changing also the dialogue where we say, you know, we used to say to people, oh, well, I only slept four hours last night and I am like killing it at work and I'm doing amazing. And actually, no, they're not. You know, we want to say, you know, those of us that are sleeping eight hours are not weaker because you slept four hours and you think you're performing better. We're actually doing ourselves a huge service by sleeping longer. I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you do. It is fascinating and for taking the time to share some of your expertise with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. I'm so happy to be here. You can find Dr. Filate's work and that of her team. They are on Instagram. It's at It's Our Time Canada. She gives a lot. You give a lot of great sleep research uh, in your Instagram clips, etc. So I do highly recommend people to check out your Instagram page. And this show, speaking of Instagram, we are also online. It is at Aging Powerfully with MG. That's my Instagram handle for the show. Personally, it's at Melissa Grello. And on YouTube, we are posting clips from some of our shows online as well. You can watch there. You can find that at Melissa Grello. That's my YouTube channel. And finally, uh, the website. It is www.agingpowerfullywithmelissagrello.com. We would love on any of your streaming or podcast platforms, if you could subscribe to the show, that way you get alerts on when new episodes drop. You can drop us a like and we would love, love, love for you to leave a review as well. It's great feedback. I love feedback to improve what we are offering here for you. So I'd really appreciate it if you took some time to do that as well. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you again, Dr. Filate, for joining me here on another episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Guello.